Well, indeed, this past weekend, <clears throat> 11 men from Cornerstone Bible Church gathered together to consider the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats of our church family. We also considered the <clears throat> positive cultural trends, <clears throat> the neutral cultural trends, and the negative cultural trends of Cornerstone. <clears throat> Excuse me. Bob and I, our role was really to take notes <clears throat> and to listen to these men. And it was really an encouraging time. It was um, encouraging to even point out our weaknesses and areas that we need to improve, areas we need to grow. And for the next week, Bob and I will meet and um, kind of solidify these evaluations, make some strategic decisions, and we'll present our annual report to the body during second hour. Uh, because of Kazakhstan, it got delayed a few weeks. We're going to do it on the first Sunday of January. So for all members who want to come on that day, it'll be a stuff. If you miss that day, you'll be clueless the whole year. So you want to be there that day. And just a, a family meeting. You know, Elizabeth is too young for us to have family meetings with her yet. But one day when she gets old enough, we'll have family meetings. We'll address family issues. And it's something like that where we gather together church family, and just honestly share about what God is doing in our midst, and really praise God for His faithfulness, and at the same time, confess our faithlessness, our weakness, our many failings, and ask God for grace and mercy to carry us on for the next year. So, uh, look forward to that time as well. <clears throat> I just wanted, just wanted to ask you guys, if you guys heard this morning, that they caught Saddam saying, alright, you know, praise God for that. Proverbs 21, 15 says that when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous. And uh, it is my prayer that this would really stem the tide of the violence that's been occurring for the past few months there and allow um, <clears throat> the country to be sta- uh, stabilized and a democracy to take root where freedom of religion can be practiced. And that means <clears throat> open door for the gospel. That means we can send missionaries to Iraq and what a strategic place for missions work. I mean, the whole, that Middle East can be a launching ground for the gospel from Baghdad or from that country. And so I ask you this week, as you read the papers, watch the news, be in prayer for the people of Iraq, that God might open their hearts to the gospel, and God might use this to um, open doors for evangelism and missions. You know, actually, Kazakhstan is further away from Baghdad. We actually passed Iraq on the way to Kazakhstan. So our feeling is we can go to Kazakhstan, we can go to Baghdad, easy. And it would be our heart's delight if we could send send a team there. This summer, maybe too early, but <laughs> maybe next summer, send a, send a team and see what God will do. You guys want to volunteer? You know, married men, go ahead, you know. <laughs> Uh, you need some adventure in your lives? Please sign up with us, talk to us, and we'll be praying with you guys that God would open doors for us as well. Well, we're continuing our study in John, John 11, the death of Lazarus, our Lord's raising of him. It is not entirely accurate to say that Lazarus was resurrected because Lazarus, he dies again, right? We don't know when. It's not recorded in the scriptures. But 
he's not raised with a glorified body, so it's not he's not resurrected permanently. He does die again. So it is the raising of Lazarus simply from death. And for me, it is a very memorable passage, a memorable text. In 1989, the first sermon I ever preached in my whole life was from John chapter 11. And it was to four students who were high school age. And I had no idea what I preached. Praise God for that. All I do remember was that I preached from John chapter 11. Next time I preached from John 11, it was to a youth group in our old church about nine years ago, 1994. A bunch of junior high and high school students who were at the prime of their lives. And as I was preaching about death and resurrection and the weeping and the sorrow of losing a loved one, I could see it in their eyes that for them, because they were so young, as many of us are as well, death was not a reality. Death was decades away, a very foreign concept, and youthful pride being what it is, many of them, and maybe I was one as well, felt invincible even to death. And so for them, the promise of the resurrection wasn't very significant, wasn't very important, wasn't very relevant. And I offhandedly said this, I don't know why, but I offhandedly said, I, at that time I'd never done a funeral, I'd never done a wedding. And I told them, because everybody's so young, I would most likely do a wedding before I ever did a funeral. Well, you know, God just proved me wrong. Within four days, we had a death at our church. Four days later, I got a phone call from one of the students saying that there was a terrible crime. And his younger brother, a sophomore in high school, was killed. He was at that service. He was sitting in that youth service, listening to John 11. I had no idea that that would be the last sermon he would ever hear. I remember sitting there just shocked, um, you know, even, even weeping, crying, uh, touched by parents what had happened. He was a sophomore in high school, a football player. I mean, a strong athlete, one of those guys, like, he's really strong, really able, really fit physically, a man full of strength and life, and in an instant, in a moment, he was gone, he was dead. And I vividly remember the funeral, some of you guys were there, I translated the funeral, and um, at that time I did the many funerals, but by far, it was one of the saddest funerals of my life. I'll never forget Bob telling me how he saw uh, Robbie's dad lean over the casket and embrace his son for the very last time. Um, when I saw Robbie seeing his lifeless body, all the youth students, we saw in that instant the reality of death. The permanency, the authority, the power of death. That when it comes upon a person, the person is helpless. There was nothing we could do. There was nothing. We so wanted him to come back to life. His parents were weeping and crying. We were praying. 
We wanted so much for him to breathe again and to come to church with us again, to play basketball with us again, worship God with us again, yet we were utterly powerless. We couldn't do anything. Death is a cruel master. He would not yield Robbie's life, would not listen to our cries nor our prayers. And we encountered firsthand the power of death and in a way, for many, many of us, it was the end of innocence. It was the end of youthful pride. This youthful confidence of life. And now, every funeral I attend, I come face to face with the sheer force of death, the unrelenting strength and authority of death. And in a small measure, I face it every day, as well as you, if we acknowledge it. You know, when I get sick and I cough, my body is racked with pain. I have a 104 fever, and I know I'm dying. Not right now, but death is inevitable. Sin, sickness... Heartache, pain, these are all signs that death has come into the world because of sin. And I believe it's a good experience for us to think about death. Think about the power and the authority of death. Because of the humility that comes with being powerless before death. That is why I believe Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through 4. Solomon said, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Why? He says, Because death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. We want to avoid hospitals. We don't want to think about death. We don't want to go to funerals. But Solomon says it is good for the living to take this to heart. Because that is the end of every man. Death and the specter of death humbles us. And it is good. It is good to be reminded of this. It is good to be mindful of our mortality. It humbles us and it puts us in our place. Now, I say all of this because this is the context in which Christ reveals his identity. Woven into this dramatic narrative of Lazarus' death in John 11, we find the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why the Gospels are so precious. That is why after studying the Gospel of Mass for four years, and we studied First Timothy for a year and a half, I wanted to go back to the Gospel of John because I wanted to study the life of Christ. And I wanted to study the, in the context of drama, in the context of reality, in the context of a narrative. So we see Christ, the theology of Christ, not in didactic truth in an epistle. We see it run out in the context of a passionate drama of a person's death. So, in today's passage for our study this morning, in 20, verses 25 through 45, through our Lord's words and our Lord's deeds, 
highlight to you Christ's three astonishing truths about himself. Christ reveals in this heart-wrenching time three astonishing truths about himself. The first truth is we touched upon last week that he is the resurrection and the life. That's who he is. He is the resurrection and the life. The second truth, and it, this is the most astonishing, astonishing truth for me, is that God cries. Let's put it simply that way. God cries. Jesus wept. Um, the most astonishing, and I think for us, it will be the most encouraging, most heartwarming. It what, it's what makes Christ, our God, so beautiful, so glorious, that He is not just a God that is transcendent, far away, oblivious to the pain of, of our, our lives. No, He is a God who is up close and personal. And when we go to Him with our sorrows and with our sufferings and with our trials, what is God's response? Does He give us an expositional declaration of His sovereignty? Does He give us a book? Hey, go ahead and read this cover to cover and uh, do a book report. No, our, our God's response is to cry with us. And the third truth is the glory and the power and the deity of Christ as he raises a man who has been dead for four days. His skin is rotting off his bones and he, he searches his soul. I mean, where does the man's soul go? Ecclesiastes says, who knows where a man's soul goes to after his death? Well, Christ finds it out. He discovers the place where Lazarus' soul is resting brings him back to the body of Lazarus, gives him life, and brings him out of the grave, revealing the power, the glory, the deity of our Christ, of our Lord. So three simple truths, astonishing truths from John 11. Let's do a quick uh, review of the context in verses 1 through 24. Um, let's review of last week's message as well. Our Lord left Jerusalem in John 10, uh, 41, John 10, excuse me, uh, 42, and he's on the other side of the Jordan River. He's about 30 miles away from Jerusalem. It's a one-day journey away from Jerusalem and Bethany. And Lazarus is ill. Mary and Martha send a, uh, a message to Jesus that Lazarus, whom Jesus loves, is sick. Our Lord tells his disciples that the purpose, the end result of this sickness is not death, but it's for the glory of God. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And John tells us that to explain verse 6. Why? Because Jesus waits two days. Our Lord waits two days so that it heightens the intensity of this miracle. Uh, he had raised others from death, but they all were raised from death shortly after their death. So people kind of, they could propose, well, it was a coma. It wasn't real death. Or there are instances of that, right? People, there was a boy that drowned in Orange County, a top hospital, I believe. 
was um, pronounced dead, and several hours later, uh, the photographer found out, the police detective found that the baby was moving, and they moved the baby to the ICU ward, and is, is bleeding, bleeding now. And so we, we hear stories of that. Well, Christ waited two days to make sure that Lazarus would be dead for four days when he had arrived, let it be clear to everybody who's there, and, and for all history, that Lazarus is dead, and by him raising him from the grave, it vindicates his claim to deity, it authenticates, it certifies that Jesus is sent by God. Well, on his arrival, <clears throat> verse 21, <clears throat> we find it is the proactive Martha, the practical Martha, who hears that Jesus is here, and she runs after him. Mary is different, right? Mary is the younger sister. She's the soft-hearted one. She's in the posture of sitting. That's the posture of mourning, of grieving, of sorrow. And she's unmoved. But Martha, she's, she's a woman of action, woman of tasks. And she's got to be doing something. So she, even before Christ arrives in Bethany, she goes out to meet the Lord. And verse 21, we find the first words that Martha says to Jesus. These words are words of faith and confidence in Christ. And we've got to know Martha, she's a woman of tremendous faith. It's faith in the real world. It's not Bible college faith. It is not FOF faith. It is not seminary faith. It is faith declared in the midst of pain and overwhelming sorrow. Her heart is melting away. Her heart is broken. And yet, in the anguish of her heart, she's not doubting. She's not anxious. She's not abandoning her faith. No, she says, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And that's, that's true faith. That's sincere, genuine faith. Our Lord responds, your brother will rise again. Oh, Martha, understandably, misunderstood what he meant. Martha said to him, yes, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And, and pious Jews believed in the resurrection. They were not like the liberal Sadducees, the discount, the miracle accounts of the Old Testament. They believed in the promise of the resurrection. And, and, and Martha declares her, her faith in the scriptures. And then our Lord's response. In it we find the first astonishing truth, about, truth, revelation about Jesus Christ. That he is the resurrection and the life. Our Lord Jesus graciously, gently, reveals himself and teaches her. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Christ said, I am the resurrection. Um, it's in a way saying, I don't have to ask God for resurrection. I don't have to pray to God to resurrect anyone because I am the resurrection. I am the author of resurrection. 
I am the creator of resurrection. I am life. He has said this before. That the raising of the dead is within his power and his will. John 6.39 This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. He said this before, and he's explicitly repeating it again in John 11, that he is the author, the originator, the source of the resurrection. And that's a theme of the Gospel of John, right? In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, and he gave people bread. In John 9, he said, I'm the light of the world, and he gave sight to a man who was born blind. John 11, he says, I'm the resurrection. And he raises Lazarus from the grave. It's a tremendous statement. You know, we've been, maybe we grew up in a Christian culture. We've been church-high for decades. So we hear around the resurrection of life and, yeah, I know that. I've heard that. Isn't that a song somewhere? Right? Someone's in that church. So we lose sense of just the just the awesomeness of this declaration by Christ, of, of what he is claiming. And he is saying, he raises dead people. And he raises those who are believers. And that they shall never see death. From life to life is within his authority. Pastor Henry Haight said, no founder of any religion has dared to claim for himself one fraction of the assertions made by the Lord Jesus Christ about himself, end quote. No other religious leader, even a fraction of what Christ claimed in the scriptures. And then in end of verse 26, our Lord personalizes this to Martha. He asks her directly, do you believe this? Martha, do you believe that I am the resurrection of life? And she responds by faith. Verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's awesome. That's faith. That's true faith. In the midst of difficulty and trial, she's clinging on to Christ. That was the formula that Christ proclaimed wherever he went in ministry. Remember in Matthew 16, Christ gathered his disciples and Christ asked them, who do the people say that I am? And they said, you know what? Some people say you're John the Baptist. Come back. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're what? You know, Jeremiah or, or other prophets in the Old Testament. And Christ turned to Peter and he asked him straight out, Peter, who do you say I am? And what did Peter say? He took a breath and he says, You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Anointed One. The Son of the Living God. That's the whole purpose of the Gospel of John. John 20, 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is what? That Jesus is the Messiah. 
that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, have life in his name. And Martha faithfully responds accordingly, says, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. A noble confession. Is that your confession this morning? Not an FOF, not a church, not in the context of Christian fellowship, but during real-life trials and hardships, sorrow and pain, where it, it, sorrow is so great that it, 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 you can feel it physically, is that your response to Christ? Yes. You are the resurrection of life. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Do you believe this? It revealed that her faith was genuine and biblical. Well, when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary. She wanted to call her by herself. The teacher is calling for you. Well, verse 29, Mary, as soon as she heard the teacher is calling for her, you know, she she should have just kind of, you know, really subtly, quietly walked out and she could have gone to Christ by herself. But she quickly got up and started making a beeline to where Christ was at. So all those mourners, family and friends were gathered to weep together. It's obvious she's going somewhere. They all trail her, follow her, thinking she's gone to the graveside of Lazarus to mourn um, uh, at that site. So here's a crowd of people coming towards Christ. Verse 32 now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same exact thing that Martha said. So I know it's not here. I'm interpreting the white spaces. But I think this is what they said to each other as they're mourning. Man, Jesus was here. Lazarus would not have died. Right. They were just saying this to one another. If only Jesus was here. And as soon as they see Jesus, the first thing they say is, if he was here. He would not have died. He would still be with us. And so we don't, we don't know this, but from verse 33 we know that as she was saying this, she was weeping. As she was saying this, she was wailing and crying. Streams of tears are flowing from her eyes. And people all around her are wailing with sorrow. We know this because of verse 33. Because when Jesus saw her weeping, and that word there is different than the word in verse 45. It connotes loud wailing, openly grieving, open sorrow. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Same word as in verse 33, early part of verse 33. She was deeply moved in spirit, greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And verse 35, Jesus wept. And then here we see the Second astonishing truth, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. John, here in these three verses, uses three adjectives to describe Jesus' emotions. First one is found in verse 33. The verb is rendered deeply moved. It's an unusual verb. It signifies... Uh, a loud, inarticulate noise. And this word is used to describe horses 
when they make that snorting noise, right? And then whatever is used in the Gospels, because of this strange description, it points to anger. It points to Christ's consternation. It points to this Christ, um, this agitation. So some exegetes, some commentators say that Christ was angry here. He was, he was deeply agitated seeing Mary cry so publicly, seeing the Jews weep. But I don't know about you guys, but the word, the first, step, the first rule of hermeneutics is context, right? So when you interpret a word, the first rule is the context determines the meaning of the word, right? Not its general use. Looking at the context, I don't see how it lends itself to the idea that Christ was angry, why would he be angry when Mary is weeping over the loss of her, her brother? It really points to that Christ had a, a visceral, a, a gut response, emotional response to seeing, to seeing their, their sorrow. John also uses a second adjective to describe Jesus' response. Troubled. Torasso. Right. Um, John twelve twenty seven. Christ said, when he thought about the cross, my heart is troubled. Uh, in John fourteen one, when he told his disciples that Jesus going away, he told them, do not be troubled, do not be torasso. That's the second adjective. Well, the third adjective is a simple one. Verse thirty five. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible. And much note that is a different word that is used here in verse 35 than that is used in verse 33. So Jesus wept here is more is, is to crowl. It, it means to shed tears. It suggests a silent, a tender weeping. Mary and the, and the family and friends they were weeping loudly, openly. Our, our Lord, He wept tenderly, silently. This is an astonishing picture of Christ crying. You know, first century New Testament, more so than now, uh, crying with a sign of weakness. Right? Men didn't cry in public. You go your whole life and never see a man openly cry. We saw a man cry, it was scandalous. I think Asian culture is pretty strong, right? Like my dad. Until a few years ago, the first time I ever saw him cry. When my grandmother passed away in Korea, not a tear. And my grandfather passed away, his dad, not a tear. We watch sad movies, right? He doesn't need Kleenex, right? Because Asian men, hey, we don't cry. Right? We cry, but not <laughs> real Asian men, right? Crying was a sign of weakness. It was a sign of an inability of one person to control their own emotions. Right? That's not a man. Well, here we have God crying. And the, and the book of John was written to a Greek audience. And it was more astonishing to them. Because to the ancient Greek, the primary characteristic of God, for us, is holiness. For them, 
The primary attribute of their deity was apathia. The total inability to feel any emotion whatsoever. In the Greek conception of God, their God was isolated, passionless, and and compassionless. In their reasoning, God could not be subject to the influence of human emotions because that means we have control over God. That means we have power over God. We can influence God. And to them, that was impossible. So the primary attribute of God was apathia. Well, our Lord just finished declaring in John 10.30 that He is God. I am the Father of one. John 1.18, no one has seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. John 14.26, He says to Philip, how can you say, show me the Father? When you see me, you are seeing God the Father. And by Christ weeping, He is revealing to us the heart of God. It's an incredible picture, astonishing picture, to see God weep. But now, we need to understand why is He weeping? Because that makes all the difference. If he's crying, because, right, you see people crying, and it's hard to interpret tears. Because there are tears of joy, right? There are tears of anger. There are tears of frustration. He's frustrated, and he's just starts to tear, right? There are tears of despair, of, of sorrow, pain, and loss. There's tears of frustration or even helplessness. Or tears for no reason at all. It's crying because no reason. A gloomy day. Right? So, uh, seeing Christ cry, that's not enough for us. We need to understand why is He crying? What is motivating the heart of God to mourn and wail like this? Well, some proposed. Um, Interpretations. One is that he was helpless before sin and death. Uh, you guys can, I don't know if you guys know William Barclay's commentary. A great expositor, uh, pretty good expositor. But he discounts all the miracle accounts of the Bible. It's ridiculous. Right? So he discounts the resurrection of Lazarus, raising of Lazarus. It didn't happen. It's not important if it happens or not because the spirit of the truth is what's important. No, and he says Christ was crying because he was helpless before the death of Lazarus. No. He just said in verse 25 on the resurrection and life, someone else said he's crying over Lazarus. That doesn't make sense to me. Like Lazarus is with God. Right? To be a part of the body is to be present with Christ, present with God. Right? Uh, why would Jesus cry for Lazarus? Right? Doesn't make sense. There's a sense where I don't know this, I'm interpreting the white parts too, but maybe Lazarus, he might have been a little bitter that Christ called him back. Right? Wouldn't you be a little bitter? Why call me back to this? You know, I'm in heaven now. I mean no more sin, no more crying, no more pain. I understand my sister need me, but come on. Right? So you know, like, when Christians die, we don't cry for the Christian, because we're crying for the wrong people. We're just crying for ourselves, because they're in heaven. Right? And why would Jesus cry for Lazarus? Because he knew, he said, this death is not, this sickness is not on the death, but on the glory of God. He knew it was going to raise Lazarus from the grave. 
Right? I mean, he might know Jones. He lost his voice five days before he died. And he, the last word he said before he died was a note. And he wrote this, Do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. Right? For Lazarus doesn't need prayer. Christ is not crying for Lazarus. What about over their lack of faith? Was Christ crying because he was angry at Mary for her lack of faith? Schaefer said this, Our trust in the Lord does not mean that there are not times of tears. I think it is a mistake as Christians to act as though trusting the Lord and tears are not compatible. To think that because you're sorrowful over the loss of a loved one, that, that means you don't believe, that's a misunderstanding. And we talked to you about our friend who's, who lost their daughter in an accident a few weeks ago, and they said it. They said, we want to glorify God. We believe she's with the Lord, but you will see us cry tonight. You'll see us cry tomorrow. But it doesn't mean we don't believe in Christ. It just means we're sad. We're saddened at our loss of our daughter. So it's understandable. In Acts chapter 8, verse 2, after Stephen died, it said, Godly men bury Stephen. And what? They mourn deeply for Stephen at his death, at their loss. Well, I believe, in my humble estimation, I believe that our Lord cried. He was deeply moved. He was troubled in his spirit. And our Lord shed tears because of this one reason. Our Lord wept out of pure sympathy for those whose hearts were breaking at this time. When he saw Martha, when he saw Mary, and all the people gathered, and their hearts were breaking with sorrow, our Lord, He's sovereign. He's the resurrection and life. He knows He's in control. He sees life in eternity. And yet out of His compassion and sympathy, empathy over the sorrow of Martha and Mary, when He encountered their, them, he, he wept with them. He was sorrowful with them. Our Lord didn't say, Why are you crying? Doesn't all sovereign? He didn't say, you know, everything's going to be okay in Christ and sing that song, right? He didn't react like, oh, he was above low human emotions. I'm God, I'm superior, I'm above emotions like tears and sorrow. No! He saw firsthand the sorrow and pain that sin and death caused these two women. Their parents are not mentioned, so maybe these three, that was all they had. And he empathized with them, and he mourned with them. A lengthy quote, I posted on the website because I was so blessed. Let me read it for you guys. A pastor, Robert Hawker, lived over 200 years ago. And writing about this passage, this is what he, what he says. Quote, My soul... Look at the Redeemer in this account of Him. 
Was there ever a more interesting portrait than what the evangelist here has drawn of the Son of God? If the imagination were to be employed forever in forming an interesting scene of the miseries of human nature, what could furnish so complete a picture as these two words given of Christ at the sight of them that Jesus wept? Here we have at once the evidence of how much the miseries of our nature affected the heart of Jesus. And here we have the most convincing testimony that he partook of all the sinless infirmities of our nature and was truly and in all points man as well as God. We are told by one of the ancient writers, Chrysostom, that some weak but injudicious Christians in his days were so rash as to strike this verse out of their Bibles because they believed it was unsuitable and unbecoming the Son of God to weep. But we have cause to bless the overruling providence of God, that though they struck it out from their Bibles, they did not from ours. It is blessed to us to have it preserved, for it affords one of the most delightful views we can possibly have of the affectionate heart of Jesus, and feeling for the sorrows of his people. Precious Lord, how refreshing it is to my soul, the consideration that you humbled yourself to become man, that you might weep with us. Hence, when my heart is poor and it is afflicted, when Satan storms or the world frowns, when I am alone, when sickness is in myself, or under bereaving providences for my friends, when all thy waves and storms seem to go over me, oh, what relief it is to know that Jesus looks on and sympathizes. Then do I say to myself, will not Jesus, who wept at the grave of Lazarus, would he not also weep for me and weep with me? Will he not also feel for me? When I look up to him, therefore I do not look up, in, look up in vain. Precious Lord, the sorrow that bursts in secret from my heart, it is not secret to you. The tear that is on my night couch, it drops unperceived and unknown to the world, but it is not but it is known and it is numbered by you. Though so now exalted at the right hand of power, where he has wiped away all tears from all faces, yet he himself still retains the feelings and the character of the man of sorrows and of one who is acquainted with grief. Help me, O Lord, thus to look up to thee and thus to remember thee." End quote. John 11.35 Jesus wept. What a comforting picture of Christ that is for us. That when we go to Christ with our pain and sorrows, when we go to Christ with our prayers soaked in tears, is Christ's response one of apathy? Is it one of cold orthodoxy? Is it one of callousness? No. He does not merely respond to us 
theologically doctrinal. He comes alongside of us and he weeps and mourns with us. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Our Lord knows the sorrows, the pain, the loss of life. And therefore, because He came as a man, He is able to sympathize with us. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 16. Let us therefore, therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. Let us not be timid about pouring our hearts to our Lord, crying and weeping before Him calling upon His name. Let us not be timid to cast our burdens upon Him. First Peter 5, 9. No, let us be bold in doing that because He cares for us. He is our High Priest who knows all. Well, the third truth is the glory, the power, the deity of Christ revealed in the raising of Lazarus. Well, they go to the gravesite with a cave and a stone lay against it. Christ said, take away the stone. And, you know, Martha, she's a practical one. She's thinking, Jesus, in four days, four days he's been laying in that gravesite, and it's going to smell. The odor is going to be really bad. Are you sure you want to do this? You know, Martha, bless her heart, but again, giving unsolicited advice, right? Uh, unsolicited counsel or guidance. Christ says, did I not tell you if you believed, verse 40, you will see the glory of God. He took away the stone. Our Lord lifts up his eyes and he prays. And he gives a prayer of thanksgiving ahead of time. Because he knows that Lazarus will be raised. But he prays aloud for the sake of the people that, that are hearing him. Verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So in verse 43, he cried out in a loud voice. He yelled it out. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come out. This makes it clear. He wasn't asking God to raise Lazarus. He did it of his own power. He is the resurrection. That power of the raising of the dead is the highest power we can conceive. Implied, as I said, omniscience. Christ knows where Lazarus' soul resides. Calls him from that place. Brings him back to the body of Lazarus. Gives him life-giving power. And raises him up. And a striking illustration of how Christ will do this again in the future. And then verse 44. Lo and behold, here is this man, the man who had died. He comes walking out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face as well wrapped with cloth. He has said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, here's a little bit of imagination. Imagine me for a moment, that's your brother, 
That's your sister. That's your son. That's your daughter. You've been mourning for four days. If there's a heartbeat, there is hope. But when there is no heartbeat, no more hope. When the person's been dead for four days, you've surrendered to the knowledge that the person is gone. Your beloved is dead. Now imagine that was you and you saw the loved one coming out with a smile, alive again. I mean, it must have been a victory celebration. Everybody, imagine just the roar of the crowd. Imagine just the jubilation, the praise, just their this love and, and this praising of God. They must have hugged and kissed and, and grabbed Lazarus. And I mean, they must have had a party. I mean, they must have had a celebration over the joy of the raising of Lazarus. Uh, verse 45, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. Well, a few final thoughts. Um, as we just consider applications for us in light of this, these three truths. First of all, for Christians, death is not to be feared. Death is not the end for us. Verse 26 makes it clear believers will never experience death. We experience death um, second, second person. We see death, but we never personally experience death. We'll never see it, we'll never taste it. In fact, <clears throat> because death is a means to our resurrection, death is a means to our union with Christ and to be with Him forever, we should long for it. We should even pursue it in a spiritual sense. James Harvey said this, How thankful I am for death. It is the passage to the Lord. Death gives me eternal life. See, for the non-Christian, death takes away life. For the Christian, death gives me eternal life. Oh, welcome, welcome death. Thou mayest well be reckoned among the treasures of the Christian. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy most holy and comfortable word. For mine eyes have seen thy precious salvation. Do you guys remember? I remember this clearly. The last day of school before starting vacation. Like elementary, junior high, and high school. You never get that again. Maybe college, but you know, college, you got summer school or you got to work. But remember, like, you got in high school, last day of school, I remember walking out of sixth period, and we all run out together in the parking lot. And everybody is just jumping for joy. I don't, I don't care what grade I got, I'm so happy. <laughs> Before college, I come for a few weeks, don't matter, right? I mean, and you just get in your car, you walk home, and I mean, just the joy of it. Well, that's what Adoniram Judson liked his death to. Lifetime missionary to Burma. His dying words were this. I am not tired of my work. Neither am I tired of this world. Yet as Christ calls me home, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away 
in school. That is desperate, Christians. We need to see it with joy. We need to see it with eager expectation. I think MacArthur said this when he had surgery, a blood clot, and people thought that was it. MacArthur's gone. He's going to be, you know, a legend now, right? He's going to be esteemed more so now because he's passing. And then he, he didn't die, of course, right? So he woke up and he shared how for a moment, he was disappointed. Like, for a moment, when he realized he was alive, oh, he was kind of sad. That's what Paul says. For to me, to live is Christ, die is gain. I am torn between the two. I desire to, be, to, to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Why is it better? Because first of all, this four tells us that when we die, we're with Christ forever. That's it. There is no purgatory. There is no second earth. There is nothing else. We're with Christ forever. First John 3, 2, it means that we're like Christ. We shall see Him as He is. We shall behold His beauty personally. And we shall be transformed. No more battling with sin. No more wrestling against our flesh. So first thing it teaches us is that death it's a joy. Secondly, it teaches us that Christ empathizes with our sorrows. It encourages us, brethren, to pour our hearts to Him in prayer. And when we're in sin, when we're struggling, when we're sad, that's when we ought to be praying. When we have conflict with our spouse, when our children do not obey, when we struggle in our work, that's when we ought to pour our hearts to Christ. And we shouldn't call people because they don't understand you. They're not going to empathize with you as you desire. They're not going to understand. No one will. But Christ can and Christ does. He understands it perfectly. And He sympathizes with you and with me. From Christ, He will not judge you. He will not trivialize your pain. He will not give you a lecture on God's sovereignty. No. He is gentle and humble in heart. He understands our hearts. Calls us to pour our hearts to in prayer. Thirdly, it teaches us to weep for others. To be compassionate to those who are hurting around us. He didn't weep for himself. Not because of his loss of Lazarus. He, he wept because he felt the pain of others. Romans twelve fifteen it says, Mourn with those who mourn. This idea of the happy Christian life. You know, calling worship services, celebrations. Right? Singing happy songs. Christianity is happiness. No, Christ is a man of sorrows. He wept for others. You know, what did, what did Paul say in Romans 9? He said, I have great sorrow and unending anguish in my heart. This, this anguish is 24-7. Why? Because I wish my brethren, the fellow Jews, would be saved. If I could go to hell and they could go to heaven, I would do it. As we see the lost world around us, we need to weep. We need to mourn. We need to have compassion on those who are suffering. 
And finally, the promise of Christ's resurrection on the saints is, 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 is not merely a doctrine to believe, but it's a doctrine to be lived out. That's what Paul said in Philippians 3.10, that he wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection. The same power that raises Christians. Now, he doesn't want to know resurrection. He wants to know the power of the resurrection. What does that mean? He wants the, resu- the power of the resurrection of believers in Christ to be a reality in his life. The resurrection will be such a reality that it will transform his life. And that's our application for us, our final one for this morning. That we need to have a long-term perspective of life. And it's not often long enough. We see life in terms of decades, or life in terms of retirement. Brothers and sisters, we need to go further back. We need to go all the way back to the resurrection and consider the reality of the resurrection. And because the resurrection is true, because the resurrection is real, we need to live it out and change how we live today. It needs to radically transform our obedience today. How we handle finances. How we pray. How we evangelize. How we relate to our co-workers. Everything we do must be affected, influenced by the reality of our future resurrection. Living in our lives with an eternal perspective that we'll be with the Lord forever. Lord, we're just humbled by your mercy towards us that you would have sympathy, empathy, compassion for us. Um, Lord, I know we come to church and we put on this uh, outward facade of, of everything's fine. Our lives, our families, our personal walk, our relationships, it's Perfect, great. The Lord, you're the heart searcher. You know us. And Lord, knowing that, may we pour our hearts to you and may we become comforted that you empathize with our weaknesses, you empathize with our, our sorrows, our loneliness, our heartaches, our disappointments in life. And you are gentle and humble and you invite us to come and we can cast our burdens upon you. And though our parents, our, our spouses, our, our friends, fellow saints might not understand us, Lord, you understand us, and you comfort us, and you embolden us to live out the Christian life unto you. Lord, may this picture of, of Christ weeping out of compassion be near to our hearts. At every moment when we're drowning and and overwhelmed with our pain. May that picture um, draw us to you and cause us to cherish you, prize you above all.
Jesus' name. Amen.